Take your Bibles, please, and turn to uh, the fourth chapter of Second Kings. Second Kings, chapter four. Paul says in the book of Acts that God is not very far from us. Yet uh, sometimes uh, He does seem to be very far from us because He's uh, unseen. We're not aware of His uh, His presence. I have on several occasions uh, expressed the thought that heaven is not off there somewhere. It's all around us. It's another dimension. He's here. He's very real and very much alive, uh, present in all of our uh, all of our circumstances. But we're not always uh, aware that he's there. And so uh, from time to time, there are these uh, what I call last Sunday breakthroughs, miracles, Times when God makes himself very real to us. Uh, The Old Testament describes those appearances as visitations. I like to think of them as little visits with God. There are those times that he shows up and we see him as as he really is. David in one of his psalms says, What is the son of man? Uh, The word that he uses for earth-born man. Just common, ordinary flesh. What is the son of man that you visit him? That's a good question. Why would God even care? Why would he try to keep in touch with us? Well, it's because he loves us, that's all, with this wonderful, intense, passionate, ongoing love. And so he turns up from time to time. He shows himself so that we can see him as he really is and we can respond to that love. Because what he wants more than anything else from us is our affection. And uh, that's why I wanted us to look at these miracles of Elisha, not as a manifestation of God's power, because if I said, as I said last week, it's hard to fall in love with power. Raw power may awe us, but it doesn't elicit our affection. But when we see the person of God as he's manifest in these miracles, it does something to our hearts. It draws out of us deep affection and love for him. That's what we see in this uh, passage that I'd like to read to you this morning. Verse 8 of chapter 4. There came a time when Elisha passed over to Shunem where there was a prominent woman and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was as often as he passed by, he, he turned in there to eat food. Uh, verse uh, 8 actually uh, begins literally, it came to pass at that time. It's an obvious effort on the part of the author to relate this story, the story of the wealthy woman of Shunem with the poverty-stricken widow uh, who lived someplace, we don't know exactly uh, exactly where. The, the point seems to be that uh, that having enough is not enough. It doesn't make any difference what you have or don't have. There, there is in all, of, in all of us that deep, deep, desperate hunger, that longing for something more. And uh, here you have a story of a woman who had everything, but yet uh, didn't have the one thing that her, her heart longed for. Uh, Shunem was a little town up... Uh, still there today. It's up on the flanks of, of Mount Mora. It's called Little Mount Hermon. It's a little hill that overlooks the valley of Jezreel. You can see it as you, as you travel up the, up the valley. And it was about midway between Mount Carmel. If you can picture a map of Israel in your mind, there's a kind of a nose that sticks out into the Mediterranean. That's where Mount Carmel is, right where, where Haifa is, the seaport, main seaport of Israel today. And Carmel is just a little bit to the southeast of that, that little nose. And uh, Samaria is located about halfway across the state of Israel, right in the center of the Valley of Jezreel. 
And Shunem was located about halfway between, just, just a little bit north of a, of a straight line between Carmel and, and, uh, and Samaria. A little out of the way, but, but from time to time, Elisha would visit that place. He attenuated through there and ministered to the people in that town on certain Sabbaths, as, as we'll see later on, in holy days in Israel. There, there were no Levites in, in Israel at this time. All the Levites had migrated south to Judah because of Jeroboam's uh, idolatrous practices and then the presence of Ahab and Jezebel and all the evil that had come into the northern kingdom. They'd all gone south, so there were no Levites there and very few prophets. And uh, it was Elisha's practice to, to go to Shunem from time to time and to teach and to minister and bring comfort to the people there. And uh, we're told that this woman from time to time extended hospitality to Elisha's probably the beginning of the practice of inviting the pastor over for chicken dinner for Sunday lunch, and she would, she'd feed him, and he'd pass on to another, another place. And one day, verse 9, she said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. I, in studying this passage this last week, I was really struck by that adjective holy because it, it came to me that this is more than just an adjective modifying man of God. This is, this is descriptive of the way God had been modifying Elisha. Only God is holy. Any holiness we have is the result of our proximity to him. And what had happened over the years as Elisha had grown is that he'd come to be more and more like God so that his reputation preceded him. He was, he was known as a holy man of God. There are a lot of men of God out there of all stripes and colors, but, but very few are really, really holy. It came to me that that's really the only reputation worth, worth having. What we leave behind in terms of our work doesn't really matter. What we leave behind in terms of the fragrance of our life, the beautiness, uh, the beauty of the holiness of our lives, is what, what matters. That's the only reputation worth having. He had it. Elisha had it. And uh, this woman wanted to do something for him. So she said to her, to her husband, let's make a little walled upper chamber and let us set a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand and it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. Now this is the origin of that phrase, a prophet's chamber, that I'm sure you've, uh, you've heard of before. In those days, houses had flat roofs. They didn't, didn't have peaked roofs as we have. And uh, that, was, that was really one of the best parts of the house. In the evening, as the breezes would blow, people would come up on the, on the rooftop and they would sit up there, and that's where all the social interaction took place. So in building a chamber up there, there this man and uh, this woman and her husband were actually giving up a cherished part of their, uh, of their house. And the text seems to indicate that this was more than a little chamber. It was uh, what they actually did, at least this is the impression that's given, is that they added a story to their house. They extended the walls and they built quite a large uh, apartment up there for uh, Elisha and, uh, and they furnished it with, uh, with, imp- with, with furniture that was common, you'd commonly find in a house in, in those days, a bed and, and a table and a lamp and a chair. Now, when you think of a lamp, don't think of a tinser lamp. Uh, it looks something like this, probably a little bit bigger. This is another show and tell time. Yeah, have to... 
this is this is actually a lamp from that period, maybe a couple of hundred years older. From uh, the, it's a Philistine lamp, but the Israelite lamps looked exactly like this. Just a little bowl. They put some oil, uh, usually olive oil or something like that, in there, and fish oil, and then they they put a little piece of hemp or flax in there for a wick, and they light it, and that was their lamp. It could could have been about that big around, but not much larger. So they put a lamp in there for Elisha. And the interesting thing is the chair. And I don't know what to make of this, but the word that's used here for chair is used every other place in the Old Testament for a, a, a throne, a seat of state. It's used, for example, of uh, Jehoram and, and uh, uh, Jehoshaphat, rather, and, and uh, Ahab when they were sitting on their thrones and they were asking counsel about going to war and and Micaiah the prophet saw God sitting on his throne, which was far more important than the thrones that they, they occupied. It's, it's that word. It's always used in that, in that way. This is the only exception. I don't know what to make of that, except what I thought of was a, was a very large, uh, luxurious, uh, lazy boy recliner, <laughs> a place where Elisha could really kick back and and rest, and and I think the point of all of this is that this was a very uh, commodious, very uh, uh, luxurious place for Elisha. This family spared no expense to make a home away from home for Elisha, where he could uh, stop from time to time as he was itinerating in his ministry throughout the uh, northern uh, kingdom. And one day, we're told he came there and turned into the upper chamber, and and he lay down. He was going to take a nap. And it occurred to him that he ought to do something for this, uh, this woman who had been so kind to him. So he said to Gehazi, his servant, who later turns out to be uh, an ungodly man, but all, this is his first appearance in the story. He's one of uh, Elisha's disciples, and perhaps was traveling with him as he was involved in his ministry. He says to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. And uh, when he had called her, she stood before him, that is, before Gehazi. And uh, actually, that last phrase ought to be in parentheses, because this is what Elisha said to Gehazi. Say now to her, behold, you have been very careful for us. Actually, he uses a word that means uh, to be somewhat anxious. It means to tremble. And I couldn't help but think of what Jesus said about Martha. Troubled about many things, anxious and upset. What Elisha picked up, I think, in this woman was more than just tender, loving care, but a but an anxiety that was driving her. There was something going on underneath that he that wasn't visible on on the surface. And he said to her, "You you've been caring for us with this kind of uh, uh, anxious care. There must be something I can do for you. What is it? Tell me." Would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army? It becomes apparent that Elisha had a better relationship with royalty than Elijah did. You know, they were out to kill him, but Elisha had apparently had an audience with the king and with the, the commander of, of his armed forces. And she answered, I live among my own people, which is an idiom for satiation. I'm, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm satisfied. I have everything I I need my my friends, my family, my community take care of all of, of my needs. But uh, Gehazi saw under the surface. 
God gave him insight, I think, into this woman's uh, deeper uh, need. And uh, Gehazi answered in verse 14, Truly she has no son, and her husband is old. She didn't have a child, and, and that, was, that was her grief. That was her burden. The childlessness in the ancient world was more than something that, uh, that drew out remorse. It was a reproach. Uh, it, it, it was something that it, it broke women's hearts. You have uh, women in the Old Testament crying out to God, give me children or, or I die, one says. Uh, you have the story of Hannah. You have uh, many stories in the Old Testament. Sarah is another who was barren, who cried out to the Lord for a, for a child. And this was what was going on. This, this woman was, was troubled because she had no children. Now, you, you find the same thing going on in, in, the, in the secular world of, of that time. Some, some years ago, I ran across a story, a Canaanite story, about a, a young man by the name of, of Daniel, not the Daniel that we find in our Old Testament. Daniel was a very common name in, in Old Testament times in the ancient Near East, and this man was named Daniel. He desperately wanted an heir. He wanted a son, and so he threw a party for all the gods. He invited them to come, and he fed them, and he gave them drink and tried to propitiate them and get them on his side. And, and then he appealed to Baal for a son. Give me a son, he said. He prayed. And Baal was apparently satisfied, and so he, he prayed to El, who is the great high god of the Canaanites. This, the poem goes something like this. Behold, on the seventh day, Baal drew near as he prayed. Oh, the wretchedness of Daniel, who has no son like his, his brothers. And then what follows is the promise that uh, Baal would provide an heir. May you bless him. O oh, El, my father, beautify him, O oh, creator of creatures. So shall there be a son in his house, a sign in the midst of his, of his palace. And in time, Daniel's wife did conceive, and, and she had a son named Makat. We'll talk about him uh, a bit later. But the plain facts are these. It wasn't Baal that, that gave that child to Daniel, if he existed at all. He may just be a mythical character, but if he was a real person, and he had that real longing. It wasn't Baal that gave him, gave him that child. It was the God of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, see, the God of Israel. The Bible makes it very clear that children are a gift from God. They are a special, unique creation. We procreate in the sense that we share with him in that conception. But... Uh, Children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a gift. Only God can make a life, see? And uh, that's why Elisha said to her in verse uh, 16, uh, she came and stood in the door of his little apartment, and, and he said, At this season next year you shall embrace the sun. Now, that phrase is exactly the same phrase you find in Genesis 18, when the angel promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. Abraham was impotent. He was uh, well into his dotage. Sarah had already passed through the menopause. There was no possibility that they could have any children. And the angel said, about this time next year, you'll have a son, a child. Exactly the same phrase. 
And literally, it goes something like this. About this time next year, life. I get the idea of a sudden emergence of, of life, uh, life out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo, creation out of, out of not one thing. Just there it is, life that suddenly uh, appears. And, of course, with Abraham and Sarah, that's exactly what happened. And they became parents of, a, of many nations, as the Old Testament says. And I think Elisha used the same phrase, precisely the same phrase, to evoke those memories in, in this woman's mind of, of Abraham and Sarah and their barrenness and what, what God did uh, for them. She cries out in her, in her despair, No, O my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant, you know, she, don't deceive me. Don't raise my hopes only to dash them. But, but the text says the woman conceived and bore a son at that season the next year, as Elisha had said to her. Now, the point to be made is this. Only God can give life. Baal couldn't give life. El couldn't give life. El was the name of the high Canaanite god. He couldn't give life. Only God gives life. God is life. He's the one who imparted it in the beginning when he scraped together some dust and uh, breathed into it the breath of life and Adam became a living soul, a living personality. Only God has life, see. Only God can give life. Only God can make alive. Now, the child uh, grew up, moved through the various... uh, Stages of childhood until he became what, what the Jews at that time called an elam, a strong little boy. That's uh, the, uh, the the child before that is called the yonek because he always clings to his mother's dress or his, her her, her uh, aprons. But at a certain time of his life, he goes out to work with his father in the fields. That's when they called him a little elam, little uh, strong man. And this little boy was out working in the fields, reaping, harvesting, sowing, whatever they were doing at that uh, at that time. Verse 18, when the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. And uh, the father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. The little boy collapsed, fell to the ground. His father scooped up his little body and put it in the arms of a servant and just thought he was, uh, had fallen ill and Send him back to the house. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and he died. It's really hard for us to pick up on you know, the pathos in that, and unless you've lost a little one, you, you know what, what tremendous grief that was to this woman who'd been childless through so much of her married life, and then to have this little boy who was just the apple of her eye, and he'd grown up to young, young maturity and and he's able to work in the fields, and he's just beginning to come into his own. And, and then he falls sick, and he's brought home, and she holds him on her lap all day until the little boy finally breathed his last, and he died. What a tragedy. And you can imagine what went through her mind. God has given me this child just to play games. He's just playing tricks on me. He roused my hopes just to dash them. But... Uh, Grief will do different things to us. Some people it drives to despair at others. It drives to God. And in her case, it caused her to begin to search for God. 
She uh, took the little boy, verse 21, and laid him on the bed of the man of God. She took him up the outside stairway to the apartment upstairs. And she laid the little body on Elisha's bed. And then she shut the door behind her and, and she went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. And he said, what, why will you go to him a day today? It's neither new moon nor the Sabbath. Those were the days when normally they gathered with the prophet for instruction on various times in the month, special occasions, and, and on the Sabbaths. And she said, peace. She said, shalom. I think probably she, she just didn't want to talk about it. She didn't have anything to say. She was so grief-stricken, perhaps... He wouldn't understand. He, he, he may have been a very hard man, and he, he wouldn't have uh, sensed the intensity of her, of her grief. So verse uh, 25, she went and came to the man of God. She had her servant saddle one of their donkeys, and she took off at great haste for Mount Carmel. And it came about when the man of God saw her at a distance that he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, yonder is the Shulamite. He's up on the heights of Carmel. He saw her at a great distance and uh, said to his servant, run, run see what, what she wants. And uh, when Gehazi met her, she said to Gehazi exactly what she said to her husband, Shalom, breaststripe past him. Because she knew there was no human help. Gehazi had no answer. She'd been around Gehazi long enough to begin to pick up on certain aspects of his character and she knew that, that he was not the source of help, and so she brushed right, right by him and ran to the man of God. And she said, did I ask for a son? Did I not say not deceive me? You know, what, what bitterness and despair. I didn't ask for this trouble. You know, why did you give me this, this boy only to have him taken away from me? Then Elisha said to Gehazi, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. And if anyone salutes you, do not answer him and lay my staff on the lad's face. But the mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. He did not go with Gehazi. She did not go with Gehazi. And he arose and, and followed her, as Elisha did. Then Gehazi passed on before them. And laid the staff on the lad's face, but there was neither voice nor hearing. That is, there's no sound, no response. So he returned to meet him, and he, and he told him the lad has not, uh, has not awakened. The, the ancient rabbi said that uh, he failed to, uh, to participate in the miracle because he stopped a loiter on the way. He didn't, uh, didn't obey Elisha's command. In those days, if you stopped to talk to someone, you had to howdy. And you spent a lot of time talking and passing the time of day. And that's why Elisha said, go immediately to the child and lay my staff on the child's face. And, and because nothing happened, because the child was not revived, the rabbis thought that, uh, Eli that Gehazi must have uh, disobeyed the prophet. But there's nothing in the text to indicate that that's true. I don't think Elisha ever thought that the staff would uh, raise this child from the dead. I think this was a lesson for Gehazi. And if I can put it this way, it's, it's representative of all of those efforts we make to try to stave off death. 
all the health foods we eat, the health clubs we join, all all the things that we do to to try to delay death as long as we can, or the the efforts that we you know to try to restore life to another, the cryogenic craze, and and all these other things that we do, but it it doesn't work. It never works. We all we die. No one but Jesus has ever solved the problem of death. Uh, as George Bernard Shaw said, the statistics on death are very impressive. One out of every one person dies. Death rate's been 100% from the beginning of the world, almost 100% from the beginning of the world. The two exceptions, Elijah and Enoch. Death's just one of those hard facts that we have to face. And in the face of it, we are utterly powerless. Remember the question that uh, Elisha raised, uh, should I ask the, the king or the king's men to help you? And her question basically was all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't help me because I want a life. Only God could give life. God gave her that life. And now she knew if life was to be restored, only God could give life. He's the author of it. So, um, verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. Uh, the author passes over that long trip from Carmel up to Shunem. must have been very dark by the time they reached the house. And Elisha went into the, his little room and he lit his little lamp and he put it on the table. And there the little, little boy was lying dead on, the, on his bed. And he entered the chamber and shut the door behind them both. That is, the little boy and Elisha. There are only two people in in the room. And he prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the, in the room once again, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That's the, the thought of, of the text. And then he went up again and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times, seven tiny sneezes in, in, in Hebrew. The word is a tisha. And it, apparently it was a sign of the return of, of respiration. And, and the lad opened his eyes and he called Gehazi, and he, he said, call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground. She took up her son and went out. She was one of those that, that Hebrews describes as women who, by faith, received their dead uh, back uh, again. Uh, I mentioned earlier this fellow, Akat, who was the miraculous son who was supposedly born of... Uh, Daniel, and the story goes on to tell how Akat was confronted with one of the goddesses. Her name was Anat. And they got kind of mixed up with each other. And she, she wanted his magic bow. He had this uh, very powerful war bow that only he could draw. He's described in the text as a mighty hero. A strong man. See how he did. And he, only he could draw this... Uh, buffalo horn bow that he possessed and she wanted it and he said you can't have it and she said well 
if you will give me that bow, I will give you eternal life. She put it this way, ask for life. Oh, Akat the hero, ask for life and I will give it to you. I will bestow immortality on you. I will make you count years like Baal, who who was thought to be immortal. He never died. He will count months with the sons of El. El was the other god. But listen to this. Akat answered, don't lie to me, maiden, for to a youth your lying is loathsome. How can a mortal attain everlasting life? Glaze will be poured on my head, plaster on my pate, uh, my hair will fall out, and I will die as everyone dies. I will surely die. And he uses exactly the same phrase that you find in Genesis 3. Exactly the same phrase. The, the language that the Canaanites spoke, it's called Ugaritic today, uh, is uh, cognate with Hebrew, and a lot of the, the terms interchange is sort of like the difference between Spanish and English, French and English. And the words interchange. The syntax is almost precisely the same. And the, the phrase, you will surely die, is exactly the phrase that you find in Genesis 3. Precisely. See, this young man knew that Anat's offer was empty. As Yoda said, strong be the force, but not that strong. Baal cannot give life. Anat cannot give life. El cannot give life. Only God can give life. Elisha went into that little chamber and he laid down on that. Well, the first thing he did was to pray because only God can make alive. He interceded for the little boy and then he laid down on him and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, just like Elijah had done before with the little boy that he raised from the dead. Now, that's not CPR. That's, that's not a, any form of artificial respiration. It's a sign of identification and entering in. And the little boy's flesh became warm, and then Elisha got up and he paced the floor back and forth, back and forth, and he laid down again. Elijah had to lay down three times on the little boy. Elisha only twice. The little boy began to sneeze, began to breathe, and came back to life. Elisha took the little boy and handed, handed him to his mother, and he, he was alive, just as alive as he'd ever, ever been. God had restored his, his life. Only God can make alive. And it's a wonderful story, and certainly it speaks to those of us that have lost uh, loved ones. Uh, the ultimate answer to our dying is, is God. He's the only one that can give life. Medical profession can only delay death. They can't really do anything anything for us. But the answer to our dying is the incarnation. When God came to earth and fellowshiped with our flesh, he identified with us in order to uh, to give us life. Now, that, that's not a myth. See, that's not just a story that we read in the Old Testament. That's one of the hard, basic facts of the gospel. That's what makes the gospel good news. So it makes it sound almost too good to be true. And if someone has said, no, it's too good not to be true, here's this notion that we're never going to die. That, that in Christ, because of the identification with us, we will never, ever die. Death's sting has been removed. It cannot get a grip on us. It's also that wonderful promise that someday we'll, someday we'll see our loved ones again, all those that have gone on, our parents, our little children. 
We're going to see them one of these days as they stand there before, uh, before the Lord. Yet, as I thought about this passage, it, it occurred to me that there are some forms of death that are harder to bear than, than others. They're even harder for God himself. Time enables us to get over the pain of a physical dying. When someone departs from this life, you know, time and uh, enough time finally begins to erase the memories and, and we heal. But there are some forms of death that are much more difficult to get over. And time does not numb the pain. It's the pain of living with someone that is dead in trespasses and sin. It may be a a spouse, a husband, or a, or a wife, or a dear friend, or a child. That can be sometimes the worst pain of all, to have a child that, that walks away from God, that does not want God in his or her life. And, and we live with that day after day after day. And, and the pain of, of that living death is much more painful than the pain of, of physical death. And yet it's characteristic of those who have those of us who have the life of God within us that we carry that life wherever we go. And we can become the means by which that life enters others. So the question is how? You have an unbelieving spouse, you have an unbelieving child, you have an unbelieving mother-in-law or father-in-law or parent perhaps living in your home who as he or she has gotten older is has gotten farther away from the Lord than ever before. For what can we do? How can, how can we bring life to that person? Well, the first thing to do is to acknowledge that we can't. We can't bring life to someone else. We're utterly helpless. Only God can, can make alive. The, the second step is to intercede for those that... Uh, are dead in their trespasses and sin. Text says that Elisha went in and shut the door on the two of them, and he and he prayed to the Lord. George McDonald said one one thing is clear with regard to every trouble: the natural way with it is to the Father's knee. That's that's the only thing we can do is to go into that secret place, that little chamber in our own hearts, and begin to intercede for that person. We don't always know what, what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit helps us to pray, as Paul tells us. And, and as David put it, sometimes all we can do is stand in the darkness in the house of God and lift up our hands. We don't know what to pray for precisely. But what we can do is bring that name before the Lord and put that person in, in God's hands. The next thing that strikes me about this text, and I hope I'm not pushing it too far, is that we have to stay in touch. He lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. And rabbis struggle with this because, uh, you know, according to Israeli law, Israelite law, they were not permitted to touch a dead body. But here is the man of God, the holy man of God, who is willing to identify himself with defilement. Just like our Lord, who touched lepers, you're not supposed to do that. Who spent time with prostitutes, you're not supposed to do that. Sinners, tax gatherers, the off-scouring, the wretched, sinful, diseased people of his time. He, he just stayed in touch with them. He, and, and that seems to be 
essential. It's not so much... The impartation of life is not so much a matter of imparting words as it is communicating the life of God. Remember I said only God can make alive. It's not our words, although words are sometimes important. The more important thing is the communication of, of life. As, as we develop those secret disciplines, those times, those quiet times with God, he begins to affect our lives draw us closer to him, and we begin to exhibit more and more of his character. We take on his likeness, and we begin to communicate that, that life to, uh, to others. I think most of us are way too, too wordy. We talk too much. It's far better to, to let our lives speak. It's, it's, our, it's God's life in us that must be expressed. The essence of God's life is that it's always expressed outward, not inward. And if we are truly in touch with God, then that life is going to affect others. And it will yield fruit. And our presence itself wields a powerful influence upon, upon others. Let me show you a text with which you're all familiar. And I'll tur- turn to 1 Peter 3. Paul is or Peter, excuse me, is facing into the problem uh, widespread in his day, that of women that were married to non-Christian men. What should they do? How, how, how should they win their husbands? Peter's argument really is don't try to win them. Don't try to win them. Uh, as uh, George MacDonald said when it When we reason for victory, we're sure of just one ally, and that is the devil. Uh, Enthusiastic evangelists generally get in God's way. But Peter is saying there's there's another way that, that that enables God to work. In the same way, Peter says, he's talking about loving our husbands the way the Lord loved those that abused him that were unjust. That treated them, uh, treated him unjustly. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they'll be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. It plays on this word, word. Even though they don't believe the word of God, they'll, they'll be won without a word. In other words, don't. It's not your preachments. It's not laying a lot of truth on them. You know, it's not leaving tracks uh, alongside their oatmeal in the morning, necessarily. It's not dragging them off to church. But what will win them is the behavior of, of their wives as they observe their chaste and respectful behavior. And let your, not your adornment be external only, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dress. Nothing wrong with that, Peter says. But, but there is another beauty, the, the quiet, hidden beauty of the heart, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord and you have become her children. It's a wonderful guild, the daughters of, of Sarah who win their husbands not by the word so much as by their godlike presence, their behavior. 
You become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. It's fear that causes us to take things into our own hands and believe that somehow we can impart life. I just want to say again, we cannot impart life. Our words cannot impart life. Well, there are times when it's appropriate to say something, but, but more properly, it's just a matter of staying in touch and letting the life of God manifest itself in you. And it's not something you can, can contrive. It's not something that you can make up. It's not something that you can pretend to be. It, it is the result of your life with God and your relationship to him that begins to change you and make you more like him so that wherever you go, people see the presence of Christ. As one early Christian said, we must preach the gospel and occasionally use words. And then we must wait. We must wait. God never seems to be in a hurry. He never hurries, but neither does he tarry. He just does what he's always determined to do. He's always on track. He hasn't lost his way. And my experience has been that these deferred answers simply make us spend more time in prayer. They help us develop the habit of prayer, put on the habit of prayer, if I can put it that way. And recalls uh, the Apostle Paul's words. People, men and women, ought always to pray and not give up. Don't stop. So if you've got an unbelieving relative, friend, colleague, neighbor, child, husband, wife, this, I think, is God's word to you from the scriptures, that you really can't bring life to that person. There's nothing you can do. It's God who must bring life, but he can bring life through you. As you pray for that individual, as you bring that individual's name before the Lord and lift him up, in your hands before the Lord, even though you don't know precisely how to pray, just to stand in the house of God in the darkness and lift up your hands. Bring that person's presence, imagined presence, into the room with you, just as that little boy lay on the bed, and ask God to, to bring life and then stay in touch. Don't recoil from the defilement. Stay in touch. Continue to love that person. You know, what, what happens, I think, as God begins to, to work in our lives is that there are spontaneous overflows of love. It just happens. We don't have to make it happen. It just happens. It touches people so deeply. And then just wait. Just wait for God's time. I don't know if that person can be one or not. There are no guarantees along those lines. But I do know that this is the only thing that we can do. Well, let's pray. And let's begin to prepare our hearts for our time around the Lord's table again. I love this figure of a table. I always think of it that way rather than a ritual or a rite, R-I-T-E, rite. It's a table at which our Lord sits. The Lord makes so much in the New Testament of this notion of eating and drinking with him. It's a powerful figure. It's why I love to go out and eat and drink with people. Something happens that doesn't happen when you sit in an office and talk. It's a wonderful example of our Lord drawing near to us, sitting with us at the table, and sharing himself with us. He is, as C.S. Lewis said, the eatable and drinkable Christ. We, we can feast on him as he, as he gathers with us.